Hello, it's Caroline, and I'm here to tell you that the episode you're about to listen to was recorded a long time ago, back when I used Patreon, back when I ran lots of different workshops and programs that I do not run anymore, and back before the Fuck It Diet book. So if I refer to any of these obsolete offerings while you're listening, just know that even though my Patreon and other programs don't exist anymore, you can find helpful resources by going to thefuckadiet.com slash more. You can also read the beginning of the Fuck It Diet book for free from my site. Lastly, this podcast is extremely messy. And it was actually intentionally messy and unstructured because that was the only way I could inspire myself to start and continue this podcast. I needed the lowest stakes possible. And though this podcast remains very low budget and has remained messy throughout the years until now, if you want slightly more structured and streamlined episodes, listen to the more recent episodes. All right, enjoy. Hello and welcome to the Fuck A Diet Radio. My name is Caroline Dooner and I am your host. We are talking about all things normal eating and all things body positive to help everyone who is trying to get to normal eating. And today I'm going to be sharing with you my interview with Melissa Fabello. She is a body acceptance activist, a sexuality scholar, and a patriarchy smasher living in Philadelphia, which is where I live as well. Currently, Melissa works as the managing editor of Everyday Feminism Online, the largest independent feminist media website in the world, and is a doctoral candidate at Widener University's Human Sexuality Studies program, where her research, and we will talk about this today, focuses on how women with anorexia nervosa experience skin hunger. Her body acceptance work focuses on making peace in eating disorder recovery, striving towards eliminating size stigma, and bringing a more radical lens to the mainstream body positivity conversation. You can follow her on Twitter. She's really good at Twitter. I'm really bad at Twitter. Follow her on Twitter at, at, right, at, okay, sorry, at F, yeah, M, Favello, and subscribe to her newsletter at her website, melissafabello.com. You can also follow her on Instagram at F, yeah, M, Favello. And yeah, she is really, really super cool and super smart. Uh, we also weirdly have run into each other a couple times on Once, I think the first time we met in real life was on a Bolt bus from Philly to New York. Um, And I've just sort of seen her around the city a lot, which is really funny um, and really cool because I used to live in South Philly as well before I moved a little bit further north. And she lives down in South Philly. But basically, I think you guys are just really going to like her. I think she's talking about things that not a lot of people talk about that we're kind of afraid to talk about, especially on that sexuality front. And I think that the things that she has to say are just really, really super important and cool. Now, just full disclosure, I am podcasting with, uh, without my microphone because my microphone actually sucked because it did get ruined when I left it in the window. If you guys have listened consistently, you will like probably have heard my saga about my microphone getting messed up. But I am podcasting with uh, my just my Apple earphones, which is so stupid and lame. And hopefully it sounds okay. I am I have a really really good microphone that my friend and I bought together. Like we like adopted a very expensive microphone for this other prod- podcast project we were gonna do like a year ago, and we haven't really ever done it. But I started this, so I am going to be fostering the microphone and using the microphone because we haven't used it at all but anyway it's at his house and I need to get it but I before we get into this awesome conversation I just want to let everyone know that I am releasing this today on February 6 2017 and this is the month this year when I am going to be sharing about and promoting my intuition program, which is only going to be running one time this year. It's running in March and April this year. So signups are now. And I essentially am teaching 
body awareness, energy awareness, grounding, and rest from my perspective and how to really lean into the sensations in your body and how to come home, so to speak, to your body in an energetic way. It is not specifically an eating or body image course, though, of course, it applies. And I definitely make the connections um, when it feels applicable. But beyond Fucketeer Academy, which is my monthly membership program, which is definitely more geared, toor- geared, geared towards um, the kind of immediate stress that you go through when you're trying to learn to eat normally, this is sort of the next step in really leaning into your intuition and trusting yourself and trusting your body and feeling what your body has to say and kind of learning from the wisdom there. And my goal is to empower all of my students to not need me. Um, That is the goal. And it is going to be super fun. So if you're interested at all, check out thefuckadiet.com slash intuition. And... Without further ado, here is my conversation with Melissa Fabello. So, Melissa, hello. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be talking to you. I am too. I'm really, really excited. Um, I will never forget listening to your interview a while ago, I mean, it was probably a year or two ago at this point on Christie's Food Psych podcast. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. It was like about feminism. Yes. It was about mm-hmm. feminism and it blew my mind in a very specific way. It's not that I didn't n- realize and know and understand that feminism was a part of eating disorder recovery and a part mm-hmm. of body image stuff, but for some reason, I didn't see it as black and white as as the terms you put it in. You're like, no, this is what it's about. Like they (laughs) are. It's so real. I think that like, and I struggle with this so much like this. I could talk about this all day, honestly, but like, I feel like there are so many people who are doing like body positivity stuff, eating disorder, recovery stuff who don't consider themselves feminists. For example, that makes no sense to me. Like, I don't think that's possible. I don't think it's possible to do that. I agree with you. And I think if you're leaving that piece out, you are leaving out a really, really important, like maybe the, obviously I think at this point, the most important piece of the puzzle. Yeah. It's this huge piece. And I think what's funny too about it is the way people talk about, you know, they'll have this sense that they'll understand like socialization and that beauty is socially constructed and they have this, they understand that and they'll talk about it. Um, but it's like, for some reason they don't realize that that's feminist thought, like yeah. that those ideas came from feminist theory. So you can't separate them. <laughs> it's like, it's not like that's, you know, something that just came out of thin air that there's a history to how we talked about, uh, how we start talking about beauty and start talking about beauty standards and all that. So yeah, it's just, yeah, to me really interesting when people are like, Oh yeah, I do body image stuff, but I don't care about feminism. Right. Like, <laughs> I don't get it. And And I will say like, I mean, I care, I was like having my own like renaissance of like feminism in my own like life experience. And it was very much because of everything I was learning and and realizing about food and body image. Mm -hmm. But I, I didn't until I listened to you put it in such plain terms. I didn't, I didn't realize it was that connected and I didn't feel as comfortable as I do now, like being really overtly and openly feminist and declaring that it is so essential and that there's no way. And I've also, it's really helped too in terms of like letting myself talk about politics now Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. on the fuck it diet platform. I was really nervous to do that because it, as you may imagine, it alienated people. It made people write me really angry emails. It <laughs> yeah. made people say, why, why do you have to bring this into it? Why do you have to, you know, why can't you just talk about food? Like you're, why are you making this political? And for like a day, I doubted myself mm-hmm. and I was mm-hmm. like, oh, maybe I really should like let this be for like everyone. And then I was like, no, no. <laughs> 
Right. Because like it can't be for everyone if we're not taking this, if we're not talking about this. And I think that that comes from a place where people don't understand what feminism is, you know? Yes. And I think people have this sense of like this, this understanding of what feminism is, that's really wrong. And so when you, when you bring feminism into the conversation, they're like, whoa, 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 we can't get political as if conversations about food and bodies aren't inherently political in right. and of themselves. Right? right. Right. So I feel you. Well, I'm really glad that I did that podcast then. Oh, it was <laughs> awesome. It was so awesome. It like truly like was like a light switch. Like it was, it, it just made it so much clearer to me and it made it it definitely empowered me to be like, Oh, Whoa, this is, this is about feminism and it's allowed to be, and it is that important. And like, it kind of just let me leave what I was talking about before that like, Oh, well, I don't want to make people uncomfortable. And I was like, wait, Mm -hmm. what? I don't want to make people uncomfortable with something called the fuck it diet. Like, come on girl. (laughs) Come on. (laughs) Yeah. uh, Let's just make people uncomfortable. That's you. That's when you start to learn things and things start to shift for you and change because really when you're talking about food and you're talking about diet culture and you're talking about all of these things, what you're really talking about is shifting social norms. Mm-hmm. That's exactly. not comfortable for anybody. Nope. You know, it's not, it isn't comfortable to have someone trying to push you past sort of like the boundary that you have of like what is acceptable. So, but if you're not going to move past that or like start to make a shift or like challenge what we believe is normal, then you're probably not ready to shift your mindset around food, period. Exactly. (laughs) Get comfortable with being uncomfortable because that's how shit changes. So That's so true. That's so true. The people who are unwilling to look at all of that stuff and how it's all connected and kind of like write a new story and look at it like there's no, there's no chance. There's no Mm -hmm. chance that like that now is the time that they'll be able to do anything scary, you know? Exactly. Yeah. And that's also okay. Like you are where you are, but yeah, that's, I think that's even worse to me is people who are like, okay, like I'm a feminist, but I don't, but I want like cushy, positive, comfortable feminism. (laughs) Like, I don't, I don't know about that. Like, I don't know what that feminism is exactly. Right. Right. so yeah. yeah, apparently everyone go listen to that podcast since it was apparently mind blowing. Like, it was, it was to me. Everyone listened to it. I go. don't even remember what I said, but I'm glad that it was powerful for you. That's that's really important to me. It, it really was. I remember I was I was driving from I was driving from New York to Philly. I think. Mm. When did I listen to that? That was back yeah. before I moved. That's a boring Philly. ride, so. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's like just New Jersey strip malls for two hours. <laughs> Nothing to look at. So you definitely need some entertainment. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And it yeah. was. Um, um, but you also you are- do so much work um, on the, you know, the relationship between eating disorders and sexuality as well. Yeah, for better or for worse. I would love to hear you talk about that because I'm definitely not an expert on that whatsoever, but I am fascinated and interested and I know that it's going to blow minds just like your (laughs) – I hope so. I can only hope that it will be as amazing. Um, Yeah, so I'm a doctoral candidate at Widener University studying human sexuality studies. Doctoral candidate is like the nice, fun way to say I'm working on a dissertation right now. Like the more like real version is like I'm in this really special hell that no one in my life can possibly understand. Um, So I like doctoral candidate because that sounds nicer. But anyway, what I'm studying specifically is the relationship between anorexia nervosa and skin hunger, which like I'll get to later because that's a little complicated, but that's Mm -hmm. what I'm looking at. Um, But the conversation about eating disorders more generally and sexuality more generally Mm -hmm. is so interesting and so understudied. Like nobody cares. It's like amazing to me how few people look at this stuff, Um, which is good for me in some ways. Like I don't have so much research that I have to read through Mm -hmm. in order to kind of understand, um, what people have already done on the topic. But at the same time, it's like, it's really surprising to me because I feel like these are two conversations that people are having, um, in like totally different realms and they just don't mesh often. So yeah, it's weird. And like, sexuality is a super small field. Like there aren't a whole lot of people who are like scholars in human sexuality. So it's not super surprising to me that very few of those people are interested in eating disorders. Right. Um, But what is surprising me is that eating disorders as such a large field, how few people take a sexuality focus in their research. Um, 
So, so there's mm, that, there's that right. like really interesting thing, um, that I find is, I mean, there's so many important things that you have to be talking about and researching when it comes to eating disorders. Um, so I get why sometimes sexuality takes a back seat, but I think part of the problem with how the history of eating disorder research has been, is it's so focused on, I think sort of a very narrow understanding of health and recovery. That's very much like we have to fix your relationship with food. And obviously that's super important and necessary. And especially if you're malnourished, Mm -hmm. um, that refeeding things like that, like need to happen in order for you to even like literally live. So like, we can't talk about these secondary things until you are actually alive. Mm -hmm. Um, So I get that. Um, but I think it's really interesting that sexuality is a huge part of people's lives, um, whether they're sexual people or not, because there's so much that is sexuality. Like sexuality is such a huge part of people's lives and like post recovery from anything, whether it's a physical or mental illness, right. um, has to include like who you are as a sexual person and how that illness or disability, if you consider eating disorders disability, which that's another entire different conversation, mm. but, um, like how those things affect you as a whole person, sexuality included. So, yeah, and I would just go so far as to say that I don't feel like people talk about sexuality very much at all <laughs> in our culture. Like, yeah, that's true. That's for like that. It's not a topic that like people. I I I would say it's not a topic that most people feel comfortable getting into. Mm-hmm. And and if they are comfortable, they're worried about making someone else uncomfortable. Yeah, totally. Like I actually yesterday got lunch with someone in my doctorate program and he was asking me, I don't remember if he was asking me about my personal life or if he was asking me about um, school. But anyway, sex obviously came up and we're sitting in this restaurant where like, you know, all the tables are very, very close. And there was this moment where he kind of looked at the two tables next to us and then sort of like whispered to me and was like, wait, is this okay? He's like, I'm taking sex school liberties right now. And I forgot that we're in public. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, I'm fine. Like, it's fine. Yeah. People don't, even when I say I study sexuality, people, it's weird. Like there are people that I lie to, like there are people I don't tell them that that's what I do. Right. You know, like, because it's just, not because I'm uncomfortable, but because in certain situations, it's not worth it to me to make other people uncomfortable, like my Lyft driver or something. Like, right, I'm not, right, right, not, right, right, right. No, I'm not even, it's weird. So, um, yeah, so depending, but then also what I get, and this is like a really important part of the conversation, I think, is that people don't even understand what sexuality is. When you say sexuality, people think it means something very specific. They either think about intercourse, mm-hmm. like sexual activity in general, but specifically intercourse, mm-hmm. or they um, conflate the word sexuality with orientation, which is like right. a big of me. Right. My mind, like, people be like, what's your sexuality? And it's like, you mean orientation, because what's your sexuality is a much broader question. Like, right. Seeing someone if they're straight or if they're bi, they're queer, like however they identify, that's a way different question. That's not what's your sexuality. Right. So for everyone listening, and even for me, can you define sexuality? I'd love to. I love having this conversation because I think it like shocks people in like a good way, not in like a weird way. No, I'm <laughs> no, I'm super excited. I think it's like incredibly relevant. I can I feel the relevance uh, not being an expert on this, and I'm just super mm-hmm. excited to get your expertise and yeah. opinion on it. So my favorite model to think about sexuality is called the circles of sexuality. So if you all want to Google it, you can. Mm-hmm. Um, I like the circles of sexuality, which is a concept that was created um, by a man named Dennis Daly in, I want to say 1981, and I should know the exact date because it's in my dissertation, but I don't. <laughs> Pretty, I want to say it's 1981. Um, but the idea is that the model basically takes sexuality and looks at five quote unquote circles. Like here are five like broad categories of sexuality. And within each of those circles, there's um, like subtopics. Like here's everything that goes into this circle, right? So for example, one that's like relatively easy to understand is sexual identity. Like sexual identity is its own circle. Mm -hmm. Within sexual identity, you could have a conversation about your gender identity. So are you a man, a woman, gender non-conforming, non-binary, agender? Mm -hmm. Um, Are you trans? Are you cis? Like that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Then there's gender role, which is, um, you know, do you, are you more masculine? Are you more feminine? 
Do you say fuck you to those concepts, period? Mm -hmm. Um, That kind of thing. And then there's um, sexual orientation. So like what we were saying before. Um, right. So like just that in and of itself broadens up the conversation, but sure. then there's, there's more circles. <laughs> so um, another one that people are generally understand is the one around reproduction and sexual health. So it's like, what do you know about reproduction? Like, what do you know about anatomy and physiology? What is your own anatomy and physiology? Hmm. Um, what kind of feelings do you have about the conversation about sex or like what attitudes do you have about sex? Um, sexual intercourse obviously fits in there and other sexual activity. Um, reproduction like what is your capability um around reproduction um for example is also part of part of your sexuality um but anyway so there's these basically there's these five circles so the other three mm-hmm. are um sexualization sexualization is like the some stuff that's kind of nice like flirting and then it goes kind of um into all the way into like rape and incest so right. there's like harassment is part of um sexualization seduction is part of sexualization huh. people are kind of surprised that flirting is in there because it's basically all bad stuff <laughs> it's like right all- and then there's flirting but, but everything's of, a, it's like all on the spectrum, right? It's on the spectrum right. of like the lightest version of sexualization. That makes sense to me. Yeah, right. It's exactly because really it's about manipulating somebody in some way. And really flirting is an attempt to manipulate someone into liking you. You know, right. like that's a weird way to put it, but it is. Right. Um, and then there's sexual intimacy, which is that can be sharing, like sharing information with people, caring, like being able to fall in love with somebody else. Um, mm-hmm. emotional risk takings, like how, um, how much are you willing, like what is your willingness to take risks emotionally with a person, like telling secrets, what, something like that. Um, and then also vulnerability, which is kind of similar, like mm-hmm. how, how vulnerable are we, are we willing to be and how vulnerable is another person willing to be with us? And then the last circle, which is actually the most important to my dissertation work is sensuality, mm. which, um, includes, Body image actually is a big one in there. Like, how do we feel about our own bodies? How do we feel about bodies in general? Um, the idea of like pleasure. So right. that could be taste, touch, sight, sound, smell, all sorts of different ways that you can experience pleasure. There's um, the ability to feel attraction for another person. There's fantasy. Like, do you have fantasies? What are your fantasies about? What is the connection between your fantasies and what you actually want to do in real life? Because those two things aren't always related. Fascinating. Like, I can't count how many times women have asked me, like, I fantasize about women, but I do not want to have sex with women. Is that weird? And I'm like, no, because there's two different kinds of fantasies. There's fantasies, what you like to think about that gets you off. And then there's fantasies, like, I actually want to do this thing. You don't have to want to do the things that come into your mind when you're like having alone time. Um, and then there's also satisfying skin hunger. So, um, skin hunger being the thing that I'm studying, um, in my dissertation, which is basically the extent to which you crave sensual interaction. So like some people like being hugged and cuddled and holding hands and things like that. And other people don't like that. So that's (sighs) skin hunger. That's sort of, so anyway, so that's one way to think about sexuality is that sexuality is a very broad thing. There are all sorts of different things that play a role in our sexuality or our asexuality. And, um, and all of those things matter. They all make up um, who we are and different parts of who we are make up our sexuality. So it is front and center in our lives all the time, whether we yeah. realize it or not. Fascinating. So, so I, well, I definitely want you to talk more about skin hunger, especially because you said that it, it, has a lot to do with the way that you look at eating disorders now. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're, are you basically saying that different people have different um, levels of like natural of like their natural skin hunger? Some people, or do you mm-hmm. think that some people purposely turn off their skin hunger mm-hmm. or are afraid of it? Yeah, I think that that I think it could be either. So, um, so skin hunger is like really similar in some ways to sex drive. So when we talk about sex drive, obviously we're talking about the extent to which we crave sexual experiences. Like how often do you want to be having sex? What kind of sex do you want to be having? Um, Generally, when you're looking at relationships, for example, you want to be in a relationship with someone whose sex drive is similar to yours Mm -hmm. so that there's um, some compatibility there. So skin hunger is kind of the same way that naturally people have different levels of skin hunger. Um, that obviously can be, I like looking at things through, um, a lens, another model (laughs) called, um, biopsychosocial model of medicine basically is kind of its full 
name, but it's basically the idea that anything that you look at has biological, psychological, and sociocultural implications within it. So like your skin hunger, your sex drive could be high or low or average, whatever that means, um, because of just who you are biologically, like what's in your like DNA. It could be what, um, it could be like something going on with you, like what you need um, for your for yourself, which would be psychological. Um, or also trauma would play into that, that mm-hmm. if you experience trauma, that could change something for you psychologically, or it could be sociocultural. Like there are different, different cultures have different understandings about what is appropriate touch, for example, right. like, or even like something as small as, um, personal space, like how close you stand to a person when you talk to them changes culture to culture. So that plays a role. Oh. Um, yeah. <laughs> right. So, yeah. Uh, so that's all, even just like person to person, you'll notice that some people, you know, you get that feeling when you realize someone's in your personal space, you know, Um, and and it's like, it's just like this really sudden, like, Oh, that's too close now, which also, Oh my gosh, I I swear. All these things get me so excited. It's so good. (laughs) It also changes based on the situation. If you're on a bus, right. And you're like standing up, say, for example, like holding onto the, the little rail thing. And someone stands right next to you, but the bus is empty. That's fucking weird. Right. You know, like that's inappropriate. Generally speaking, in our culture, that would be weird. Um, but if you're in that same situation, but the bus is crowded, then you don't necessarily feel your personal space is being attacked. Right. Necessarily. Because right? you don't so, feel that the, you don't feel that it's a choice on the other person's. Yeah, right. On it other, feel yeah. like uh, like a boundary being. It's like, right. I understand that this We're all in this flexible. together. <laughs> yeah, right. I understand this boundary is flexible depending on um, the situation. So anyways, um, yeah, so someone's skin hunger and sex drive can be affected by all sorts of things. Um, which is why sort of the thing about eating disorders is really interesting. Um, so like full disclosure, I am specifically studying anorexia nervosa in Mm my, um, work. So I can't really speak too much to sexuality and other eating disorders. The reason why I'm focusing on anorexia, it's sort of a somewhat controversial choice because I think that, we have a problem when we talk about eating disorders where we really prioritize restrictive eating disorders, right. uh, sort of center them in the conversation. But uh, I had to limit my research in some way, and I chose anorexia partly because the most research is there. Right. So, you know, <laughs> there's a limitation there, but that's – so that's why. But um, so the thing about anorexia and sex drive that's really interesting is that women with the anorexia, and I'm also specifically studying women, I am calling that anyone who identifies as a woman, most research doesn't really tell me what they mean by woman, right. which probably means that it's cisgender women, um, if they never thought to even think about, you know, kind of operationally define that. But right, right. anyway, so women with anorexia tend to have far lower sex drives than women with bulimia or unaffected women. Also, mm. most of the research was done before BED was added to the DSM, so it's usually anorexia and bulimia being compared. Right. Um, so, yeah. So, tend to have lower sex drives, lower interest in sex, more negative attitudes towards sex, um, just less interest in sex overall, uh, very immature. They, they consistently use the word immature. Um, immature thoughts or feelings around sex, and also very avoidant, just generally avoidant of sex. Right. Um, and very comfortable with that. So there's something to be said about someone who is like lacking sex drive or sexual desire and they feel like that is affecting their lives negatively. That would be, you know, something that you could maybe call a problem that you're looking for a solution for. But if you don't think of it as a problem, if you're just fine with it, like I don't want sex and I don't care. (laughs) Um, that that's, that's something else. That's, that's not necessarily a problem. Um, but yeah, so, but you generally see women with anorexia having lower sex drive. Um, not interested in having sex at all. Um, although women with anorexia have also said that they are willing to have sex for their partners. That like a lot of times, like they don't want to have sex, but they'll have sex because they know that it could affect their relationship. So mm-hmm. you also have people having sex in situations where they don't want to be, um, which and we could talk about that all day too. Mm-hmm. But um, what's interesting though is kind of like the love, there's so many different mediating factors for why that could be. Like it might not be the anorexia itself. It could be that there's a high comorbidity of anorexia and depression. And depression also is, um, tend, people with depression tend to have lower sex drives. Or it could be that a lot of people with eating disorders have experienced sexual violence. So it could be trauma 
that is mediating the sex drive thing. Um, or it could be body image, right? Like body image is a mediating factor. Like it might be that it might not actually be the issue with food. It might be actually what your feelings about your body are that's causing you to not want to have sex. Um, yeah. So, so we know that, right? Like that's suggested in the research over and over and over again, that that's an issue. But my problem is that the definition of sex drive in that research is always very narrow. It's always um, something along the lines of desire for sexual intercourse or desire for um, sexual activity, um, which leaves out this whole uh, like list of activities that you could be engaging in that we don't necessarily consider explicitly sexual, right? right. Like, like massage, like cuddling, like all of those things are like still touch and still intimate and physically intimate. And yet they're not being asked about at all. Like it's just not coming up um, in the Mm. conversation about sex drive, which to me is like a huge gap in the research because a lot of times the reason why we want to look at sex drive is because we want to think about, um, like relationships, for example, like a relationship with one or more people who has anorexia, for example, like how do you hold space, say in therapy, for example, for, for that? Like, how do you say, okay, well, um, I know this about you, which could be connected to your eating disorder. Um, and here are some ways that we can kind of work around that with your partner, um, or work with it with your partner. But if, if there's no research telling you that, okay, well, they might not want to have sex, but they do want to do these other intimate activities, or maybe they don't want to do any of them at all. Um, I feel like that's a way different conversation. Like the way that you're going to approach that is going to be really different. Right. You know? Yeah. It's so strange to me. Whoa. That is really fascinating. Really, really fascinating. I mean, and just from my like own personal experience and perspective on this whole topic, um, my first thought when you mentioned it was, well, yeah, like there's the physical, like, when you restrict food, if we're going to just talk super, super biologically, doesn't mm-hmm. it really lower your sex hormones? Isn't that a thing that happens? So like yeah, it, it can, can be uh-huh. direct cause and effect there. But I also feel like I have talked to enough women and worked with enough women and read enough about the body – the the fear of the body that can mm-hmm. be the cause or or one of the causes of an eating disorder mm-hmm. um it, it, you know so it's like what came first the chicken or the egg because yeah, it's right. this uh-huh. fear of being a sexual being it's a fear of having a body fear of having boobs being being sexualized on the street, which is totally mm-hmm. understandable. I, I honestly feel like for me, that was like a piece of the puzzle of me being like, what the fuck is going on? I feel unsafe. I mm-hmm. hate looking like a woman. It makes me feel um, like an object and like a piece of meat. And I would love mm-hmm. to just be look like a little kid again. or mm-hmm. look like, And that was definitely a piece for me. Right. And that's such a huge, that is such an important part of the conversation. And it is, you know, there is a whole body of literature on that. Um, I, and I'm not suggesting that you did this. I'm just mentioning it. Like I feel really strongly about not looking at, um, eating disorder development as a, um, like a single cause issue. Yeah. I I don't think it is either. No, totally. A lot of the research, I, sometimes I feel like it's saying that and it annoys me. Um, but that is, that's so hugely important because even you think about as a kid, um, I'm trying to think of how to word this because it's not necessarily being a woman that causes it so much as having a body that is read as being a woman, I guess. Mm-hmm. So like when, when I turned, you know, when I started going through puberty and my body started changing in a way that was read as other people as turning into a woman, quote unquote, like as soon as that started is when sexualization started. Right. It wasn't like, oh, I was 16 17 years old or in my twenties or something when men started talking to me on the street, harassing me on the street, that would be bad enough. But I was 11, right? You know, I was 12. Right. Um, and especially for a very young person whose body and puberty is a terrifying time. Like, let's just say that it is a really weird time. And I don't think our society 
does enough to prepare children for puberty. Mm -hmm. It's just really confusing. Um, and yeah, like at this point in time in your life, it's like, I don't know what I'm doing wrong. Like all of a sudden I'm getting all this attention. That's really scary to me. Um, so how can I stop it? And I think that that is one way that many people have expressed um, where they're kind of eating disorder thoughts or like body fear um, thoughts started right. was, was around puberty. Um, right. And when all of these, when all of these very terrifying things are happening in so many ways, like just the changes in your body period are scary. Um, never mind the reaction that people have to those changes. So. Right, 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 right. It's all really, really, really fascinating. Yeah, it's wild, right? So, um, yeah, so then I guess really my question becomes, you know, what about skin hunger? Because it's not a conversation that people are having. It's like we're having all these conversations around it. Because there's also a nice chunk of research around um, intimacy. And there's a nice chunk of research around touch. Um, right. But there's not, but, but that question around like, what are, there's like a little bit, there's tiny bits and pieces. There's like a couple of studies that I'm just like so happy that I found because I'm like, Ooh, this gives me a tiny little glimpse into right. what I'm looking at that like makes me think there's something there that's worth asking. But like generally speaking, there's just not, there's just not a lot on the topic whatsoever. And I think that that's, um, I think that could really add to, um, I think that could really add to that body of research and, and, and potentially start to fill a gap where there is one, or maybe just really notify people that that gap exists. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. You don't realize there's a gap here, but there is. So other people, please research this. Right. You know? Is there anything that you have found or come to on the subject that has uh, like on the um, relationship between skin hunger and eating disorders, or are you sort of in the place of starting to ask the questions right now. Yeah, there's definitely some stuff that's like worth looking at that's really interesting. Um, there's a few, yeah, a couple of studies or like bodies of literature that I found that have been like really mind-blowing to me. So for example, um, there were a few studies published, I want to say in 1995, that was, um, that showed that women with anorexia expressed that they felt that they had wanted more touch in their childhoods and that they wanted more touch in their current lives so that they felt like in their current relationships, they also weren't getting enough touch. So there's obviously like a huge amount of research on infancy and what they call touch nurturance. So like receiving touch from a caregiver um, or multiple caregivers. And that's really important to, to our development um, as human beings. Um, there's also like chimpanzees, apes and chimpanzees. Also, there's a lot of um, touch that's necessary. So our closest, obviously, biological relatives. Um, so so there's that. So there's this interesting thing around like, yes, we know that babies need to be touched. Yes, we know that not touching babies can um, lead them potentially to develop body image disturbance. Hmm. Um, so and body image disturbance being sort of a complicated thing. I think that a lot of times people hear body image disturbance, they think, or even just like negative body image or something like that. People think about, okay, I see myself looking like this, but the way that I actually look in reality is different. Um, mm -hmm. Like I don't see myself for how I actually look, which is a part of it. But there's also, so this was like the most random, like interesting thing that I uncovered while I was writing my dissertation. So in a dissertation, well, in my program anyway, um, you have this whole chapter that's your literature review. So it's like, okay, here's everything that's ever been said on this topic before. Um, and here's like kind of building the case for why your study is important. So I was almost done. I hated chapter two. It was exhausting. It's like a hundred pages long. It's like, I just, it was too much. I hated it. I just wanted to be done with it. And I thought that I was done. And then one day, I don't know what I typed in as a search term, but whatever I touched it, I typed in, gave me this whole new, uh, like fields basically about, um, about like about touch in a way that I had, that I had not considered basically like was, it was this whole new body of research that I then, I was like, this is fascinating and damn it. Now I have to go back to this chapter and add all this information. <gasps> but what I found was the conversation about body image disturbance is also about, um, not just how you see your body, but like how you understand your body, like how you feel your body, um, in the world. So, so there was a couple studies that showed, for instance, that women with anorexia struggle with um, tactile 
sensation huh. that like if like they register touch on their bodies differently than necessarily other people do. So for example, there was um, one um, study where they would place an object on um, a person's abdomen and then another object on another part of their abdomen and would ask them to um, like determine where, how far apart they were. And that women with anorexia were way worse at this. Like they weren't able, yeah, like they, that they weren't able to like correctly um, sort of estimate distance like that. And then there's also, um, what do you call it? Oh, proprioceptive, um, it's a very fancy word, proprioceptive like understanding basically. Proprioceptive being um, how your body moves in space. So like, for example, I think I have really bad, um, what do you call it? Vision on the side of my eyes. What do you call ah, it? <laughs> can't like see. Peripher- peripheral. peripheral. There you go. Vision? Yeah. I feel like my peripheral vision is pretty bad. I like bump into walls a lot. <laughs> so like, I think that's honestly my vision, but similarly, it could be something like if I thought that I had more space than I really did. Right. Like that would be an understanding, like a misunderstanding about my, like how my body moves in space. So this whole body of literature is called um, somatosensory. It's like somatosensory experiences. So there's like a part of your brain that, um, you know, takes in these somatosensory experiences and, and processes them. And women with anorexia tend to have a deficit in that part of their brain. Hmm. Yeah. So like this, like, that's so interesting. Right. And I was like, Oh, that's all part of body image disturbance. That's like, I don't understand my body. Like the relationship between like from my skin to like the nerves to my brain is like messed up. There's not yet. There's something wrong with how I'm taking in and processing the the experiences I have in my body. And wild. Do you know, or is, does anybody know whether that is a, a cause like an effect of what happens to the brain when it's malnourished or is that yeah I think it's I think I'm gonna say don't quote me on this but mm-hmm. from what I remember it's it's about yeah it's a brain deficiency that is more I think an effect of right that happening in your brain rather than with something that's like uh like a cause like oh we we like this is here and that's a likelihood that you might be uh, susceptible to eating disorders. Right, I think it's right. more of an effect of the eating disorder. That makes more um, sense to me just in, in general. But Yeah, totally. Yeah. So, whoa, yeah, whoa. super, right? Really interesting. So, so interesting. There's a lot there. It's yeah, so there, cool that you're doing this. Yeah, work. and it's again like just these like tiny little like, oh, I found this study that said this and that makes me wonder about, you know, this. There's also like a whole body of research around massage being actually a very effective, potentially effective um, alternative treatment or, um, not sure alternative, but like additional treatment, um, for eating disorders and particularly anorexia. Really? Because I have declared 2017 my year of massage. Well, that's great. (laughs) There you go. Because apparently, yeah, like that. So there's, yeah, there's that whole body of research also, which is just, yeah. So these tiny little things that I found that make me go like, oh my gosh, like this really, this question about skin hunger is really important because it ties into all of these things that otherwise might seem somewhat unrelated. So yeah, it's fascinating. And I also, it it makes me want to kind of look at it through one of my lenses, which is I talk a lot about, I put things in terms of like energetic concepts a lot for people and a lot Mm -hmm. of the work and a lot of the, the teaching that I do with the people that I work with is I talk about grounding, which mm-hmm. is the ability and willingness to actually inhabit your body and to right. actually feel what it feels like to be alive mm-hmm. in your skin. Um, and that my, uh, what I have come to believe is that there is also this thing with women with eating disorders and especially a very restrictive anorexia nervosa that there's a there's a desire and this is you know this is often subconscious but uh we don't want to be fully alive we want we don't want to feel what it feels like um to have all these emotions and have all this pain and trauma and 
it's uncomfortable to be a human and mm-hmm. that it's a way of trying to avoid it altogether. And I definitely, I mean, from my perspective, it looks like there's a huge overlap there, even with yeah. just the concept of skin hunger. I think it's Yeah, absolutely. There was, a, in a very early draft of my dissertation, I had a whole section on like mindfulness and the idea of embodiment. And then I took it out, but, but, it, but there was a whole section on it because it is, it is very relative. It's like, it's very, very related. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So it's really I fascinating. Agree. That's really fascinating. Yeah. Huge connection there for sure. So how, I don't know anything about dissertations. How, oh my gosh. How, how, Consider like, yourself lucky. <laughs> how <laughs> long does it take? I know it's different for everybody. Too long. Too long. It's, um, yeah, it's different for everyone. It, it, you know, there's a lot of factors, like what kind of study you're doing. Um, if you're a full-time student or not, um, you know, all sorts of things, obviously. But, um, for me, it's taking, it feels like forever, but I'm actually really fast. So like, here's the thing, my understanding of this process is that it's taking too long. But whenever I try to say that to like my dissertation committee, they look at me like I have four heads. Like they're like, you are going, you are doing this so fast. Um, so there's, uh, so I've been writing the dissertation for a year. How long have I been writing it? I started writing it in September, 2015. Okay. Yeah. So I've been writing it for about like a year and almost six months. I'm a year and a half. I've been working on it. So, um, the thing is that there's all these, like, there's hiccups in the process because it's not just you writing something. It's sure. like you writing something and sharing it with someone else and they have to give you feedback and then you have to change this and then you have to ask permission for this and then mm-hmm. you have to prove that you know this. Like, there's all these steps, right? So the um, kind of like the first chunk is writing your first three chapters, which is um, eventually considered your quote-unquote proposal. So you write these three chapters. It's like, here's an introduction to why I'm doing this. Here's my literature review and then here's the methods I plan to use in my study. And then once everyone kind of agrees that that's pretty good. Like once your chair of your committee is like, this is good. Um, then you have to, other people have to read it. So your committee reads it and then you have a meeting that's like, okay, is this good enough for us to let you do this study? Like, do we think that you know what you're doing, that you're not going to hurt people that you have like your ideas are good. Right. Yeah. So I just had my meeting that meeting last week. Um, so, so to give you a sense of like the timeline, I wrote my first three chapters in about a four month period. Right. That's 200 pages I wrote in four months while working a full-time job. Sure. So, so like, I know that I'm, like, doing all right with speed. So it took a year between when I finished it, um, or the first draft anyway, for, you know, my chair to read it, for him to give me feedback, for me to revise it, for it to eventually go to a committee, for them to read it, for them to give me feedback. It took, it took all this time. It took almost a year. Mm-hmm. Um, longer than a year, actually. So... Anyway, so that's where I'm at. So now I'm at the point where um, I can ask permission from the school to do the study. They have to, so I have to do like a, there's like a whole other application you have to do. It's like another 20 page application. Wow. Um, yeah, it's wild. And then you know, and then eventually, so the hope is that they say yes, this is good, it's ethical, and um, then I can actually start the study. Right. So that it's, it's so long. And then after that, you have two. After you do your study, you have two more chapters to write. You have to write the you know, analysis of like what happened. Like, this is what I, this is the results that I got. And then you have to write your kind of discussion. Like, um, so are you doing a study like with people or are you, whoa. Yeah. Because I'm getting a degree. It's a science, it's a social science degree. So yeah, I have to do. So like, depending on like, if I was doing a literature degree, for example, like some other like humanities, then like you wouldn't do that. You would just be like, Oh, you would like read some books and have some thoughts about them or, you know, whatever. Yeah, but yeah, I have to actually do a study. I have to actually Whoa. know. Oh, I mean, that's it. That'll be awesome. And that'll be like, you know, that's kind of like the point, right? It, like yeah, learning right. more learn about. Stuff, yeah, yeah. About this particular issue from actual people who, you know, have that lived experience. So, yeah. So I'm, I'm getting into the space where I'll be asking for participants soon. So I'll make you aware of that in case anybody that you know is like, oh, I really want to talk about this. Awesome. No, <laughs> totally. That'll be amazing. Yeah. It's so exciting. I think you're so brilliant. And I think your work is so important and fascinating. And I just know that people are going to listen to this and like light bulbs are going to go off. That's I really hope so. That's, That's how a dream. I, yeah. I mean, 
yeah, no, I mean, no, nobody's talking about this. You're the one who's talking about this, you know? Yeah, it's pretty, it's, yeah, it's pretty wild. I'm like really hoping that by the end of all this, when I finally have a piece of paper in my hand that allows me to call myself Dr. Fabello, that I will, and I will for like six months, probably only refer to myself as Dr. Fabello. (laughs) But I, um, yeah, like really like one of my goals is to be able to be a person, one of the only people in the world who has, um, an understanding of eating disorders and sexuality with specifically a sexuality lens. I feel like for all the people who do research at the intersection of eating disorders and sexuality, but with within the eating disorder fields, I feel like it could be so valuable to have me on that research team yeah. um, to be able to like add this perspective that other people just don't have because very few people have a perspective, um, a sexuality perspective period. So yeah, I'm hoping that people will really be like appreciative that there's someone who knows this information. Otherwise it's just in my head and useless. No, it totally will be. And yeah, I'm super, I'm super excited, uh, that you shared all of this with me and with the people who listen to my podcast really like I'm super excited. And I like took like intense notes, like for my <laughs> own, like I was writing down all the circles of sexuality and I like got chills because I was like, oh my God, I didn't even know that there were so many different ways of looking at it. No, it's super exciting. It's super That's cool. That's awesome. That's awesome. I'm yeah. so glad. I'm, yeah. Um, thank you, Melissa. Thank you so much. And thank you for your patience with me with weird scheduling and with not being able to do the last time we had and um we made it happen we made it, it happen meant to be. it was meant to be it was meant to be I'm sure that I will talk to you and see you around the city too because absolutely that's what we do I run into you all the time by I, accident I so. know <laughs> um and also like you know a year down the line we should totally have another conversation and see where you are with yeah see what I found out yeah (laughs) totally see what happened yay thank you I I'm I'm just incredibly thankful for you sharing your thank you thank you for having me of course all right there you have it that was my interview with Melissa Fabello go find her online if you don't already follow her And I am, you know, this is the end, you know, so to speak, of my hiatus. I took a little hiatus from podcasting. I am going to be back. I'm going to be reading my old posts again, maybe even reading my new posts also at the same time. Um, And I'm always running Fucketeer Academy over at thefuckadiet.com slash fucketeer if you want to check it out. I teach energy work and I teach a lot of um, ways of releasing old stress and looking at your relationship with food and body. And then, of course, I am now, again, as I said before, I am enrolling my intuition intensive. It will be starting in March, and it will be enrolling through the end of February. That is over at thefuckadiet.com slash intuition. I'm also going to be teaching people how to do their own energy work. I'm going to be teaching people how to do muscle testing. What else? What else? What else? Um, And that's it for now. I will see you. I won't see you, I guess. I will talk to you the next time I have a new episode to put out, which will hopefully be soon. And if you could go over to iTunes and rate and review this, it'll help other people find it. You can also support the podcast directly at patreon.com slash Caroline Dooner. And besides that, I must bid you adieu. Goodbye.